to another episode of Debatable with your hosts, Nina and Kyle. For today's episode, we decided to tackle one of the most requested episode topics, whipping. And honestly, we have been putting off um, discussing whipping for so long, not because we didn't feel like it or anything, but because teaching people how to whip is probably one of the most difficult things, in our opinion. And the script for this one was one that we mused over, we fought over, and then eventually spent many, many hours on. And I feel like a reason why this happens is because the way that we teach and the way that we end up talking about whipping is based on some really vague terminology. So when you're a new debater, you're told that it's a whip's job to summarize and clean up the debate, but that's still kind of vague. That's why for many of us, our very first whip speech will involve something like a narration of what happened in the debate, like Prime Minister said this, DPM said this, LO said this, la la Finally, member of opposition said this, 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 thank you. And then it's, it's kind of weird, isn't it, when the judge or the coach or the mentor says, that's not actually how whip speeches are supposed to be like. And you're like, okay, I tried summarizing it because you told me that's a summary speaker, but that's not really how it's supposed to be. So how is it supposed to be done, actually? And then the coach says, or the mentor or the judge says, well, we say it's a summary because we call it a summary. We call you a summary speaker. That doesn't mean that the whip shouldn't add anything to the debate. You can't just make a synopsis. So that's the reason why some whips who do this are called, at least back in my day, parrot whips because they just say something and they parrot it back to you. So, the judge goes on to explain that actually, you're supposed to make new analysis without having new arguments. You're supposed to make new rebuttals. You're supposed to clean up the debate. You're supposed to summarize the debate still. So, among those four things, you don't know how to summarize because, again, it still hasn't been defined to you. You also don't know how to clean up the debate because that's not defined to you. All you know is how not to argue things and how to rebut things. Which is why, for your very second whip speech, you go to the opposite extreme end where you just rebut everything. The PM had these arguments, blah blah blah. I have one rebuttal for all these things. I have another rebuttal for LO. I have another rebuttal for... Why would you rebut your opening half? That's ridiculous. Anyway, you you get the point, right? You just rebut and rebut and rebut and that's the entire thing. Without having a coherent flow, you're just giving a list of complaints, a list of rebuttals, a list of harms without necessarily proving why you win or why any of those responses in the bigger picture matter. And this is what's called shotgun rebutting. It's also tricky to talk about whipping because depending on the format, whipping styles are different. At least I personally believe they should be. Because whips in the Asian format often dedicate themselves to winning issues through breaking deadlocks, rebutting, rebuilding the team's case through clarifications, those stuff. But whips in the BP also have to take into consideration that they are also the team's reply speaker. So they have to do a lot of the aspects that reply speakers usually do in Asians. If you want a refresher on reply speeches, you can listen to an episode we did about it in the past. I think it's episode 25. Of course... You can approach whipping the same way for both BP and Asians, and there won't be a harm. Um, but I think it's going to give you an edge if you recognize nuances in each format. This is why Kyle and I, when we team up, I'm not always the whip. I am a whip during the BP format, and Kyle usually whips for our team when it's Asians. Finally, it's also tricky to talk about whipping, because a lot of terms mean a lot of different things to different people. Through the evolution of debate, we have also started developing a lot of jargon that we all sort of understand as a community, but we never really see eye to eye on. For example, what's a deadlock? 
Kyle and I had a really long discussion because we understood deadlocks to be very different. Is it a noun? Is it a verb? Can you verb a verb? Can you noun a noun? What is an issue? Is it accurate to say that an issue is a theme? Is an issue a question? Does it have to be confined to the debate topic or can it involve meta-issues? So these are things that make discussing whipping or any position really very difficult. Because we throw words around with the assumption that you understand it the same way we do. But in reality, it might not be the case. So that's it. That's like the, the reason why we kind of held off on talking about whipping for so long. But we eventually had to, you know, discuss it one way or another. So after a long process, this is what we have. So what should whipping actually look like? And we're going to be giving you short definitions before we move on to the real technical stuff. The first one is, how do you define cleaning up a debate? So, most of the time, whips begin their speeches by saying, this debate was very messy. And it's because of this misconception that you can only clean up a messy debate. But I don't necessarily think so. It doesn't necessarily mean that the debate is messy, where people don't engage with each other, they don't agree with anything, etc. They don't make concessions. Rather, when we say clean up the debate, it means that the debate involves some points of disagreement that make it difficult to assess the debate properly. We can consider the quote-unquote mess of the debate as hindrances or roadblocks to meaningfully discussing these issues later on. So this looks like having varying definitions of the same thing or different burdens that might not be evenly distributed. So the goal of this clarificatory part of your web speech is to make sure that all the judges watching the room are on the same page. Once you settle that, Everything else that you point out in your responses has become easier to process. We also need to define what summarizing is. It's not a simple matter of merely saying what happened in the round, because you also need to organize it in such a way that most concepts become clear and digestible. Because when you're watching a round, it may be confusing to the audience as well as to the judge. So your job as a whip is to rearrange the debate or reword what took place in the round so that the judge better understands the exchanges, better understands who won what issues. And obviously, if you are able to control the narrative and the summary, you get to do it in such a way that it makes it advantageous for your team. Usually, you do this by categorizing ideas into issues or categorizing them into questions. Because by making them into questions, you're able to point out how the teams had different views and resolve those views in your favor. But now you might be wondering, Nina, what's an issue and what does it mean to even resolve it? So an issue could be a lot of things, but basically it becomes an issue if it's a disagreement when it comes to the debate. So you might have a similar goal, but you have different methods of achieving that goal because you're governed up and you want, for example, empowerment, but empowerment comes in different ways and you want to achieve a different kind of empowerment. So to resolve an issue means you have to first establish which goal is more realistic and which team was able to paint the picture better of achieving that goal. So as a whip, your goal is really to make your team look like it was the team that was able to resolve the issue best, and pointing out why the other team was insufficient in their premises, for example, or their methods or their mechanisms in achieving said goal. So how do you go about cleaning up a debate? The first thing that you want to do is to identify different ways that certain words are being used, either explicitly or implicitly. Because you want to identify differences in interpreting the motion because that's a real source of disagreement. It is something that we call having different language games. 
So for example, consider a situation in which A and B, let, let's say a boy and a girl, are arguing over something. And the boy says, you know, you never really support me. And this is really frustrating to me because I feel like you should be supporting me more. And then the girl says, well, that's not really true. I supported you in this instance and in this instance and in this instance. So after that, the conversation sort of escalated, their disagreement escalated, and people's feelings were hurt. So a lot of philosophers of language looked at that and said, actually, I think I know why they had these disagreements. It is because they're playing different language games. They used the same term, support or never, and they interpreted it differently. So for the boy in this case, when he said, you never support me, he was playing the wish game where he actually meant, I wish that you supported me more. So it's not a plea to facts, it's a plea to the future. Meanwhile, the girl in this case wasn't playing the same language game that the boy was playing, she was playing the facts game. Like, is this factually correct? This is why she gave certain examples of, you know, her supporting him. So this is where those disagreements come from. They don't really understand each other because they're not aware that they're using different language games. So this is the reason why it's very important to identify different definitions of the same word that happened within the debate that people just take for granted. So you have obviously unfair examples like in this house of legalized prostitution, if government defines it as breeding chickens, that it's a valid definition, but it's probably not the debate. But most of the time, if you're a whip, it's not those obvious unfair definitions that need to be clarified. There are more insidious forms of this taking place. So if the motion is this house believes that cancel culture has done more harm than good, it wouldn't be surprising if the definition of cancel culture itself would be a serious point of contention. You'd therefore have to dedicate a portion of your speech giving fairer definitions that everyone can work with. And this is really tricky. Like, to be honest, it is actually tricky because it is tricky to identify the language games. It's tricky to give a language game neutral um, definition of those terms because there will always be the temptation to define things in your favor. But the best test that we recommend is to see if you're clarifying correctly, is to check the definitions, if you're using them, if they're good and understood to be good by all the sides, or if it's common sense on average reasonable person. So if all the sides can probably agree that that's a good definition, then you're doing a good job of clarifying those terms. Clarifications, however, aren't just for terms in motion. It can also be about other stuff, like standards and even the issues themselves. Like, if both sides are arguing for empowerment but define empowerment in completely different ways, then your clarification should be able to point out that the definitions are different and that the debaters are playing quote-unquote different language games. Because otherwise, if you allow the term empowerment to be broad and vague enough to mean two different types of empowerment like individual empowerment and collective empowerment, it will easily lead to a debate having an unresolved issue or worse, you might lose if the judge accepts their definition and uses that to judge both issues mistakenly because they thought it was the same thing. There are a few ways to resolve this. The first would be you can treat them as two separate things and give them each their own definition to clear up the confusion. So empowerment turns into individual empowerment and collective empowerment, for example. That way it becomes easier to discuss the issue because you turned it into two sub-issues or two completely different issues altogether. 
Another thing you can do is argue why one definition supersedes the other and is better and fairer to use in a debate. An example of this is, for example, in a debate about whether online protest or online activism is effective. Effectivity can be defined by your team to mean able to enact change, for example. But the other team will argue that effectivity is only there if you are able to dismantle all oppressive systems. Both definitions are technically valid, but the definition of the other team is intentionally limiting because it's unrealistic for any team to actually prove dismantling of oppressive systems and toppling of dictators. So it doesn't give much opportunity for your team to win. So as a whip, you can point those out and it's going to be fairer and it's going to like elevate your standing in the debate and give you a better shot. Next, we want to take a look at an overarching question. So the overarching question in the debate that you want to point out as the whip is the question that all the sides aim to answer. So although it is almost always the case that sides differ pragmatically or principally, both sides always aim to answer the same overarching question, even though it's often implicit. For example, if the motion is, this house regrets society's focus on the perspective of mass murderers, government and opposition will have completely different arguments as to the effects of that focus. And yet, the question that both teams are trying to answer is the same, whether or not it is worth it to focus on these perspectives despite the potential harms. And yes, you have to accept that there will be potential harms as well as potential benefits on focusing on these particular Um, perspectives, right? The overarching question sets the priority for what you should show. So you can say that the overarching question is about, I don't know, protecting a certain actor, usually the most vulnerable actor in the debate, which is why a lot of debaters say, this is where we protect the most vulnerable actor. Or it could be around the goal, like getting a Democrat elected, for example. A lot of motions are like that right now, given the elections in the US are coming up. Or it's about the time frame, like is it more important to have immediate benefits or sustainable long-term benefits? Or it could be a value judgment where you say, okay, there are two equally valid principles, which one is more valuable? So why is this cleaning up? It's because you now make a standard for relevance. If you say that this argument um, is not relevant to this debate, it is precisely because it doesn't answer the real an overarching question. This is also why a lot of whips dedicate a section of their speeches where they will respond to things that quote-unquote don't quite fit in with their issues. They're saying these points are 1. Not super relevant to the debate, 2. Not part of the main issues that they initially planned for, or 3. Are things that they just want to point out as wrong before engaging with the rest of the speech. So overall, I think the importance of being fair in cleaning up are twofold, right? The first would be because obviously debate is still a sport and as much as possible you want to be fair. Even if you win with your weird definition or skewed ways of defining things in the debate, it's not going to be a victory well earned or it might even lead to controversy, which is something you want to avoid as much as possible, especially in the debate community. But second is, more importantly, on a strategic standpoint, if you're not being fair in cleaning up, you're not really fixing the debate, you're just adding more to the mess that's already there. So you think it might be strategic to skew things in your favor, but it just makes it easier for others to point out that you're being unfair and it might even give a judge an incentive to penalize you. Okay, so now we're going to be talking about how to summarize the debate. This is where, again, the most common way to do this is to identify these things called issues. 
and an issue is crafted in at least two steps. The first step is by categorizing ideas presented by teams according to what they want to prove. And then after that, secondly, you want to lump those ideas that aim to prove similar things together. A speaker can have multiple arguments, but each argument could be trying to prove different things or related to different themes. For example, in the motion, this house would legalize prostitution again, PM can say that, well, number one, it makes women empowered by expanding their choices. Number two, it helps us protect sex workers who might otherwise be victims of abuse. Meanwhile, leader of opposition can say that number one, actually it is not a legitimate choice at all because most of the time they're forced into it, it's a manufactured decision, it's a coercive kind of thing. And secondly, it actually hurts women because it normalizes treating them as sex objects, which we don't want to happen. As you can see, there are four different arguments presented. There are arguments that try to prove what is or isn't a good choice, and there are arguments that try to prove that it does or doesn't protect women. So you can say there are two issues in the debate. That means there are two general categories in which you can categorize the arguments from each team. In this case, the two issues are one, whether prostitution is valid and a good choice, and the second issue would be whether legalization actually protects women from harm. So Ayun, you can categorize ideas and lump them together, you can call the category an issue, but how do you know which categories are relevant? How do you identify an issue? And I think that the most reliable way to do so is, you know, by conscious practice. Because you want to analyze what the ultimate goal of an argument is. It becomes easier to determine what theme the argument falls under or like what it's trying to prove or like what issue it falls under. Um, the immediate goal of an argument is obviously to prove that the argument is true. But the ultimate goal is to show why the argument helps to, uh, helps answer the overarching question. Every good argument helps answer the overarching question in different ways. By identifying the different ways that arguments answer the overarching question, you can extract the issues from that. So an exercise that could be useful is, this is what I did, um, we looked at different motions and conceived of arguments for both sides in those motions, and then we lumped them together. So here's another example. Consider a motion that's like, this house believes that the state should pay for cosmetic surgery. Government argues that people discriminate based on looks, and since the government has a responsibility to reduce discrimination, it should probably subsidize cosmetic surgery. Opposition argues that, you know, if people discriminate based on looks, then actually paying for cosmetic surgery only affirms that people are correct to discriminate on that basis. So the ultimate goal of both arguments is the reduction of discrimination, although they differ on how to get to that goal. There are also issues that are common to different debates, and that's also the reason why it's good to train a lot because you start seeing these patterns with regard to issues. So if we defined what resolving issues were earlier, now we're going to talk about how we do it. And usually this is what people consider the meat and potatoes of a whip speech. And because that's the case, it's also very hard to explain. Because as I mentioned, you want to make it seem like your team has the most answers or gave the clearer picture as to how you were able to answer the issue that was raised or the problem that was um, tackled in the debate. And a lot of the tips we gave for building and rebutting arguments from the previous episodes also apply here. But here are a few more tips that make it easier to resolve issues or at least you can take into consideration when you're dealing with the arguments of another team. I think for this part of your speech, your approach should be something like take the idea that you want to examine, be it something that your team or another team said, 
and look at it from the perspective of how it responds to the issue. That's what we mean when we say that WIP should take a few steps back to assess the debate's bigger picture. While there's no one template that fits for all debates, here are some areas that you can explore when discussing your issues. You can ask things like, were the points of the other teams properly built? If not, why? Like, was there a contradiction? Was it illogical? Did their stances shift? Was there a shaft? If it suffered from one of those flaws, so what? And then you can next say, okay, assuming that it's properly built, is it actually true? Now you can say it's completely true or partially untrue or logically untrue or factually untrue, like if like what we said in the rebuttal episode. But if your partner already said that, you can go one step further. How did the other team react to this? Right? How did they respond to your team's response? Did they even defend it? Did they try to rebuild it? Or did they just drop it? Right? You can also ask, what did your side or your extension speaker say in answering this issue? So aside from a rebuttal, what did you guys specifically say? Like, what is your positive contribution? This is where you want to rebuild your side or your partner. Okay, so you, you already rebuilt your partner. Was that responded to? Did they evolve, right? And if it wasn't responded to, this is where you go like, see, they didn't even respond to my partner's extension. And if they did respond to it, this is where you go add your new responses. You're about the rebuttal. Basically, if the debate evolves, you have to evolve with it. You don't want to be left out and, you know, be called out for stagnating the debate. You can also push your teammates' arguments even further. Like, if your teammate is correct, what does that imply for the debate as a whole or for the world at large? This is a new analysis, by the way. You say something like that. Like, if the motion was something about banning Nazi symbols... And the entire government bench said it's offensive, it's scary, it poses a clear present danger. Symbols can rally together neo-Nazis. If you're closing opposition and member of OP said um, the power of symbols is a two-way street, for example. It can rally neo-Nazis, sure, but it can also rally the rest of the world to stand against neo-Nazis. So you, as the opposition whip, you have the opportunity to push it further and say, actually, as a new analysis, that if you ban or restrict those symbols from popping up, it just increases its power. And this is where you say, like, fear of a name only increases fear of the thing itself and other um, Hermione Granger quotes like that. Um, you can also have some more even ifs. Like, ideally, every speaker will rebut with even if rebuttals. But... Um, I think you can assume without conceding as much as you want. Um, and I feel like, especially for whips, you want to assume the worst case of your team or assume the best case of theirs. As long as you say that even if we're on our worst case, even if you're on your best case, we're still better than you. So you can do some increasingly crazy even ifs. So in the banning Nazi symbols one, you can say, okay, even if it's scary, even if it's offensive, it's actually good. Because this mean this means that um, it'll be effective as a rallying cry for progressives, and we already said that. Then you can say, okay, even if you know neo-Nazi politicians can use the symbol to have a stable voter base, this okay, you know, because at least now we know who believes in these bad and evil causes. You can point them out, you can ridicule them, etc. And then you can say, okay, even if neo-Nazi politicians win. And like, for example, like Donald Trump, I'm not saying that he's a neo-Nazi. I'm just saying that a lot of neo-Nazis believe in him and vote for him. So even if those kinds of politicians win, it's okay. Because 
At least this is a starting point for rethinking our democratic systems like the electoral college or let's rethink our strategies as a democrat party or as the opposition. This is what Slavoj Žižek said and that's why he said that between Hillary and Donald Trump, he'd prefer that Donald Trump win because at least it's gonna shock the world and we're gonna have to rethink how we do things. And you could say that Žižek was right, you can say that Žižek was wrong because it's still happening but either way it's a good even if and you can even say you know even if none of those benefits happen it's still okay because at least in principle a democracy can only work if everything is available so south park would say that that's the price that you pay for freedom of speech like it's either everything is okay to talk about or nothing is okay to talk about So now that you have the basic contents of a web speech, you also need to take into consideration how you're going to package everything. This is the part of the episode where we give you options and not really answers, because personally, we don't think there is a foolproof, 100% guaranteed winning format for whipping. It often varies per person and per round, and sometimes you'll need to experiment and change things up a little because there are going to be rounds where you need to use clarifications more than issues, and some rounds where issues are the the main thing that you focus on, and other times where you just even talk about strategy the whole time out, right? But this is important to know nonetheless because you want to figure out what your approach should be and what the approach is going to be most effective for you. Now, while we can't prescribe exactly how you should whip, we can give you some guidelines to consider when figuring out how to package your particular approach. You can ask stuff like what your approach should be. Should it be offensive or defensive? Because one skill that whips often lack would be the ability to read the room, right? So debates, they're very dynamic, usually. Ideally, you know, uh, whips need to be able to adapt to the needs of the team. So burdens can shift the debate as the debate progresses and the strongest team also changes as more speakers get to finish their seven minutes. So what whips need to do is to learn how to be flexible and keeping in mind that how they approach your speech will have to be best suited for what the round actually looks like. This is a skill that unfortunately most whips often forget or have a hard time doing because the focus is usually on rebutting as a default, meanwhile forgetting that the role of a whip goes beyond that. The offensive approach is when a whip primarily focuses on destroying the case of the other team. This means there is an emphasis on pointing out flaws in the case as well as contradictions. This approach is most ideal in debates where your partner's case is left mostly untouched, which allows you to focus on why the failures of the opposite team will lead to their loss. Usually, the best way to see if the offensive approach is best suited for the round is to see if you will be able to prove why your opponent loses, even in the absence of your own partner's case. The other approach would be the defensive approach. There are debates where you can detect the need to rebuild your partner's case, maybe because the previous speaker heavily responded to it, or maybe because people misinterpreted it and are trying to strawman you. The defensive approach also means that your strategy as a team is heavily reliant not on the failures of your opponent in the round, but on the raw strength of your argument. The the test for this approach would be to see if your team's arguments would be the best way to answer the overarching question in the round or issue, regardless of whether or not you assume the arguments of your opposing side were all true and all very strong. There have been personally instances for me where I didn't focus so much on arguments of my opponent because my team's case was very different from all the other discussions in the round. So the strategy I had to do was directly show how our unique case and the case that could have easily boxed us out 
was actually the best case to use in the, the round and the answer to all the questions that everyone had in this debate. So one instance would be in the semifinals of the Beco Debate Festival. I was whipping for Kyle on the motion this house would promote body neutrality over body positivity. So we were CG and had to defend body neutrality. While opening half and CO and even OO focused a lot of their case on ensuring the happiness of the actors, Kyle and I took a drastically different route and discussed any feelings towards your body is bad, right? So we were against having any emotional attachment to your body and what it meant for you. So given how different our approach was compared to everyone else, my whip had to focus less on what others said and focus more on why what Kyle said was the most relevant despite it being different and why it was actually the answer to everything and therefore fit perfectly in the round. So it was very, very defensive and necessary for the round and in the end it turned out well. An important disclaimer here is that despite the existence of two approaches, it does not mean they can't coexist. So there will be rounds where you have to do a bit of both, so 70% defensive and 30% offensive, whatever. What's most important is that you're aware that your strategy as a whip needs to change depending on what everyone else does. Another thing that you might want to talk about is, you know, at least talking to yourself before you make your speech is, how should you structure it? What should your style be? Should it be like a chronological type whipping or should you talk about team-based like I have three discussions. The first discussion is why we win over closing opposition. The next we're going to talk about why you win over cl- opening opposition. The last we're going to talk about why you win over opening government. Could be like that. Or it could be the classic issue space. Or it could be a mix of any of those things. Um, so there are advantages to each type, you know. Um, if you're talking about a chronological kind of whipping, you're basically telling the story of the round. It is actually very similar to parroting because it's it's a narration of what happened in the debate. But you want to go beyond that because an effective chronological whip speech will involve commentary on what the exchange was about. So um, it's not enough for you to say, PM said this and then LO said this. Actually, you're identifying an issue that happened within that exchange. So in the first exchange, the issue was this. And la la that's why it became this. So it's you looking at one very big issue sometimes um, with a lot of sub-questions, a lot of sub-issues. And you want to talk about how ideas evolve um, throughout the debate. And you want to add in your own stuff there because sometimes they drop certain ideas and you say, they shouldn't have done that. You can also say stuff like um, you want to insert your new analysis or your new rebuttals while you're doing the commentary between those exchanges. So you say, actually, Prime Minister won this exchange, but I'm just gonna seal the deal even more and say, even if blah blah blah. blah. Um, and this could also be useful if the team is just um, shooting themselves in the foot and you want to point out more and more contradictions as a strategy. So the best way to point out those contradictions is to talk about it chronologically. Or if there isn't just much to say due to a lack of contentions or a lack of issues, maybe a chronological way of making your real speech would be valid. Team-based whipping is something I've seen is increasing in popularity in the debate community. It's basically whipping like a judge in the round. So if you're up whip, then you will make your whip speech something like, why did we win over OG? And then why did we win over CG? Why did we win over OO finally? 
You can refer to the reply episode for a bit of insight as to how these kinds of whip speeches will go. But basically, you are taking whip elements and just arranging them in an oral adjudication manner. When discussing why one team won over the other, you are still likely to talk about issues. So the style is not as different. It's just packaged in a way that makes it easier for a judge to sort of understand or even adopt the, the issues and the explanations you, you provided. So this style is most common as well for people who likely transition from judging to debating. Admittedly, I did this when I started out debating because I was so used to judging and this was just like a default format for me. But eventually, I grew out of it. Some people haven't and that's fine because this is also a valid way to whip. The last way is issues-based whipping. So this is where the focus of the speech is primarily to resolve issues. This is the most common way and overall, this is what we sort of covered already. It's just that you need to identify the issues and use the steps we mentioned to resolve said issues and therefore structure your whip. And you know, um, you can always mix and match. As always, don't be confined to the structures that we provided. There are times when it might be effective to mix and match. You can do team-based whipping for the opening half and then use issues-based whipping to discuss closing. You can create your own style and revolutionize the debate world's understanding of whipping. The fun of whipping is actually in all the possibilities, as well as all the time that you have as the final speaker of the bench. So, above all else, especially in BP, you have the most leeway to be creative with your structure. But you have to keep in mind that a lack of structure may also cause confusion and make it difficult for the judges to follow. So, in the end, it's actually a balancing act where you wanna stay true to your style and your voice and also be aware of what your job even is to begin with and your capabilities as a whip. So it might feel like there's a lot of things to keep track of, but you will naturally get a feel for what kind of whip speech you will need with practice. For example, you might notice that your arguments were weakened and therefore you will naturally gravitate to being on a defensive stance or defensive approach. You might also be able to notice that the debate is messy and you might therefore end up having more clarifications and talk about things in a chronological style. So in the end, these are all things that will be flexible and things that will adjust. So it's just good to be aware of those things so that as time goes on, you can pinpoint exactly what you're doing and how to improve those things. So that's it for this episode. We hope you had fun. We hope you learned a lot, especially if you're a newer debater. If you just want to start whipping right now or if you always get the short end of the stick and then you're told that you have to whip for this round in training or if you're told by a coach that hey actually you're really good at responding try whipping sometimes even though you have no clue how to whip so we hope that we helped you if you're one of those people so that's it thank you for listening tune in for the next episode where we talk about something more serious thank you